Hi, and welcome to the After Animals podcast. After Animals uncovers trends and stories at the cutting edge of the global post-animal movement. What does a future look like in which food, fashion, and entertainment no longer have to exploit animals to be successful? Each episode, we will share with you a remarkable and inspiring story about someone who is forging a more compassionate future for us all. After Animals is co-produced and hosted by me, Yulara Nakagawa, and me, Sharanya Krishnaprasad. Yulara, before we dive into this episode, I feel like we just have to acknowledge what's happening in the world around us. Yes. We hope our listeners are staying healthy and safe in these unprecedented times. Yes, definitely. So you may have caught that in some recent headlines, there have been reports of U.S. farmers dumping tons of milk out uh, into fields and lagoons outside of their farms. It seems crazy, but it's really because of the decreased demand from places like schools, restaurants, and other food service providers, which have had to shut down operations due to the pandemic. So now, every day, farmers across the nation are dumping milk. The Dairy Farmers of America estimates that between 2.7 million and 3 million gallons of U.S. milk could be dumped a day as a result of this crisis. It's really hard to wrap one's head around, but the more devastating reality is that for America's dairy industry, this type of milk dumping is actually an ongoing regular practice, pandemic or not. Hold on a second. So you're saying that this would happen even if we weren't all stuck at home and not able to get to school or restaurants or food service providers? That's right. It's interesting that the media is highlighting this now, but this has been an ongoing practice across America for nearly, what, from what I could find, uh, a decade now. And a few years back, the Wall Street Journal reported that in the first eight months of 2016 alone, American dairy farmers had already dumped 43 million gallons of excess milk out. If you Google it, you'll see the scenes and it's just, it's really, again, hard to wrap one's mind around until you see these rivers of food being thrown out. Why are they extracting so much more milk from cows that are suffering abuse on a daily basis if we're not able to use it? Yeah, again, that's the absurd you know, reality behind it is why produce something that is trash and at a cost of the millions of dairy cows across the country who are kept in notably inhumane conditions in factory farms and who are being forced, you know, as we know, being given antibiotics and experiencing painful infections consistently like in their udders uh, in order to produce something that is completely unwanted and unnecessary. So cow-based dairy consumption in the U.S. has been steadily declining for decades, but the industry absurdly keeps making milk no one wants because, and here it goes, the government pays them to. Yes, and this is something that I found in my research as well. And here's an insane fact from a Canadian government report. In 2015, the US government granted the dairy industry $22 billion in aid, which made up 73% of the dairy industry's revenue, in air quotes. And it's not just a US issue, it's happening all over the world. 
And that's not all. Milk isn't just getting dumped out in the fields. They're also converting a large quantity of the milk that they are not able to sell or use in another way. They're converting it into cheese. And so the US is now sitting on a massive cheese stockpile, which is a way to store the milk without it spoiling as quickly or easily as liquid milk. And going back to the decline for a second, from a consumer point of view, we've mm -hmm. heard that recently both Dean Foods and Gordon, which are both huge dairy companies, have filed for bankruptcy. And according to the USDA, per capita fluid milk consumption has plummeted 40% since 1975. And so in just a few decades, Americans have gone from drinking 247 pounds of milk per person to 146 pounds in 2018. So it went down significantly. Yeah, I mean, all of these are key signals that the market for cow-based traditional dairy milk and dairy products is obviously, you know, hugely changing. People are drinking less milk. People don't want to buy as much milk. There's excess product to the point where it's getting dumped or being turned into huge stockpiles of cheese. Dairy companies are going bankrupt and it just, none of it makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. And of course, there are also plant-based milk alternatives such as soy milk, almond milk, pea milk, and oat milk that are growing in popularity. They haven't taken over the dairy market yet, but it is a serious disruptor that is rising. So in the US alone, these milk alternatives grew at a 61% rate between 2012 and 2017 alone and it's estimated that plant-based milks will be a 38 billion dollar business in just under five years from now by 2025. And so yeah so there's this decline that's happening in the cow dairy industry there's this uh, an exponential increase in the plant-based milk sector but now there's another option and companies like New Culture are coming up with that. And they're using cutting edge technologies that are creating even more realistic dairy products, but ones that are more sustainable and economically viable than our traditional industry. Yeah, so I hope that this episode can be somewhat of a bright spot given all that's going on right now in the world. I'm very pleased to have with me today Inya Radman of New Culture. I will have Inya tell us more about herself and her background, but New Culture as a company is aiming to disrupt the dairy industry and so to create dairy without the cow. I will have Inya introduce herself and tell us more about her background and how she got to where she is today. Welcome Inya. Thank you, Sharanya, and thank you for having us participate. We're really excited to be part of your podcast. So uh, my background is quite, I would say, similar to a lot of uh, very academic scientists who, who came into the, into the biotech. So we start doing science when we're young because we want to change the world, probably. And we then go down through years of education and academia to learn that it is very exciting and demanding what we do in academia to pursue kind of knowledge development and discovery, but it, it rarely has implications to the real world, to the outer world. And so for me personally, there was that disconnect and I knew that I wanted to work on things that are meaningful to me and that are applied to the real world. So my background is in molecular and synthetic biology. 
and actually protein engineering. So I studied protein biochemistry and biophysics in my master's. And then for my PhD, I, I worked in synthetic and molecular biology in, in Cambridge in the UK. I'm Croatian actually myself. So uh, that's where I got my, my primary and later education up until my master's degree, actually. And so um, the way it went for me with new culture is quite interesting because I didn't start new culture. I joined new culture. So Matt, my co-founder and the CEO of new culture is the one who had this vision of bringing to the world, not only, as you said, dairy, but more specifically cheese, really the tasty, uh, yummy dairy cheese as we know it, but that is free of animal cruelty and that is sustainable. And so Matt, Matt is a, a passionate vegan and he's motivated to, to work to stop animal farming. And in his uh, kind of pursuit of how, how, what is the best way for him to participate in this space, he identified how much people adore cheese and how much people struggle uh, to give up on it. While at the same time, cheese being one of the most unsustainable animal products, actually, given the metrics around land use, water use, the emissions needed. At the same time, where we see a gap is that there are no good, tasty, viable alternatives to cheese in plant-based world. It doesn't really taste or behave like cheese. It can be, it can be a good product, but it's something else. And so Matt was, Matt was on a lookout for a, a scientific co-founder. And after speaking with him for a few times, I was super inspired by his drive. And I was also quite convinced that this, what we call cultivated cheese, is something that's feasible for us to attack and to, to solve. And so I joined him as, as a science lead. And for me personally, I've been quite horrified and obsessed, to be honest, with climate change. So I really came to, to it from, from that angle, as well as, as animal welfare, obviously. So our joint mission and, and New Culture's mission is to bring to the world this first tasty uh, dairy cheese, but that's also sustainable and, and doesn't involve animal farming. I have been vegan for a little over 12 years now, and I still miss cheese. <laughs> As you know, I can't bring myself to actually consume cheese because I know where it's come from. But once these alternatives are in the market, then that's definitely something that I will be trying. And that, that's how we feel, exactly. Yeah. So tell us more about this cheese that you're developing. Like what makes your cheese different than other cheeses out there? I know you kind of alluded to it based on the plant-based alternatives. Tell me more about your products. Sure. So also within cheese, because cheese is such a massive market and also such a broad concept. There are so many different cheeses and they're completely yes. different one from another. So we are, to start with, we're focusing on something really exciting to me being European who, lo who loves uh, proper Italian mozzarella. So we're working on, on actual fresh dairy mozzarella. And what it means is that we're developing, we're developing both the technology, so the bioprocess, as well as the formulation for making that fresh dairy mozzarella, which basically contains the key components to a good dairy cheese, which is um, dairy protein called casein. Everything else uh, that comes usually in milk, that's animal-based, we are replacing with plant-based ingredients, so fats and sugars. And why we are doing this this way is because we really are focused around understanding the molecular structure of cheese. I think this is where we are uh, unique and different as well. And what this really means is that we, uh, we figured that all the properties we love about cheese, and in particular mozzarella, would be the stretch, the mouth, 
the special texture it has. It comes from basically balls, balls of casein protein called micelles that exist in mammalian milk. And we are basically replicating those same structures that mammals make in their milk, but we are doing it by using microbes and fermentation and not cows. So that is really what is different to, to our cheese that, uh, than any existing cheese or plant-based cheese on the market is that without these uh, crucial uh, bowls of, of casein protein, you are not able to replicate the, the structure, the texture, and all the molecular properties of cheese, unfortunately. And this is where what makes us uh, able to do so. So, okay, diving a little more deeper into the process itself. So you're using special microbes that you then feed them certain nutrients or what, what exactly does that process look like? So you feed mm -hmm. them nutrients and then they produce casein? Or exactly, exactly. So it's almost like if you think about it like a little factory and any factory or any process uh, where you have feed, you have an input that comes in, and that's used, if you think of it from physics or chemistry point of view, that's used as energy. And then that energy is used to be turned into doing different functions in the cell, for example. But in our case, we're trying to channel as much as possible of that energy into producing casein proteins in this fermentation process, which is very similar to how people, you know, brew beer. And so once we come to, to produce the, the casein proteins, then we also uh, undergo a process that, that we're developing that, as I say, makes it possible for these proteins to uh, basically behave like they would in milk, which is not how naturally they would behave uh, just by themselves. And so, so we then form these balls of casein protein called micelles, and they, they are the key component uh, that we take through, uh, through the formulation that we make for cheese and cheese making. Got it. Okay. How did you come up with the microbe that would do this process? Like, what, does, what did that look like? What I've seen in research and, and biotechnology is that you have some ideas and you come up with some hypotheses, but you actually don't know until you test and try things out. So it's, it's more that we've had, we've had several ideas of, on how we could achieve this. And we basically explored different paths and then found, sometimes to our surprise, that one thing's work one way and the other's the other way. But what I think really helped us optimize our process is strong focus on cheese. So we, we do not try to do everything. We don't try to just in general produce uh, dairy proteins without thinking of how they make a product. And we also are not, at this stage, we're not focused on any other dairy products. So really we are working with cheese in mind when designing. And that really allows you to, to streamline the process. Uh, in many ways, uh, to be targeted for, for cheesemaking, so for the product you want. It makes sense to hone in on one product and to do that really well before trying to go off and do multiple other things. And this obviously will give you a good footing to be able to do other things beyond just the mozzarella once you have the process figured out. Absolutely, yeah. Because the process we're developing is a process that is universal for all cheeses, in a way. So... When you make cheese, there is a precursor step to cheese, which is a curd, something that in some countries people eat as well, quite tasty, fresh product. So um, we are basically developing technology to make the curd. And so that means that we can then make any cheese in the world one day. In terms of raising capital from investors, I know that you've been doing really well on that front. Can you tell us a bit more about how that process has been going for you and what, if any, advice you have for other people who are looking to enter the space? I think for us made a big, big difference that very early on, 
kind of when the company was started and how far we were down the line. We were accepted to an amazing biotech accelerator program that I'm sure a lot of people here will know of called IndieBio. And that basically made IndieBio and the SOSV, which is the venture firm behind IndieBio, become our first investor. And that enabled us to have uh, four and a half months of dedicated lab space support of, of the IndieBio team, coaching, raised funds, and you know, full-time engagement on advancing our proof of concept. So that really meant that participation in IndieBio for us opened so many doors. In various ways, as I described, by enabling us to really come and focus on, on uh, getting that next milestone. Um, but then also through the strong network that the program and the alumni companies have been helpful to us. So that meant that we engaged with investors from very early on while we were at IndieBio. And to be honest, we were also fortunate. You have to always be lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, there is a lot of interest right now in future food. And luckily there is because obviously, as I said, there are, there are very uh, uh, obvious problems in our supply chain these days and, and food production that so many of us are trying to tackle. And so we've had from early on at IndieBio, we've had many parallel conversations going with investors, which kind of set us on good foot. But still, um, I must say, Raising capital is as difficult as always, I believe, despite this, uh, this heat in, in the field. And I think it's getting more and more difficult in a way because the bars are starting to get higher on what, for example, a minimum viable product is for a food biotech company. You know, a few years back, it was so novel that you could just have a concept sometimes and, and raise money. But these days, you, yeah. you do have to prove and show that you know, that you, what you're doing is feasible and it's, it's scalable. And so, so bars are raising definitely higher and it wasn't an easy process, but yeah, I think IndieBio definitely opened a lot of doors for us, as I said, and then it was on us to work hard and really show that we're the team who can do this. With regards to advice, I, I haven't mentioned, but uh, I should probably mention, you're right. We, we have come to close a really successful seed round after IndieBio and we, not only that we're, we raised funds there, but we also were really fortunate to find a great group of people to work with in our investors. With regards to advice that I would give, I would say um, it's really going to be cliche, but it's going to be um, simple, but it's very true, is to work very hard, work as hard as possible, be dedicated, be thoughtful, be always a good scientist, meaning being tough on your data, being honest. It, it's really important to excite people and to, to show the, the potential. But it's also important not to oversell what you're doing because it would, can be really harmful uh, down the line. Great advice, uh, particularly about overselling, because I think that's been a challenge sometimes in the past with companies with overselling a concept and then not being able to deliver on it. Speaking of challenges like that, can you tell me a bit about what challenges you're working through right now and what you see as opportunities in the future or in the near term? I think, the, again, the, the challenges, and we speak about this to other uh, companies in, uh, in the similar stage. We kind of we have a, we're all friends here, and we, we see that we all have the same similar pains and similar challenges, and those would be around speed to execute in a way, speed with which we have to achieve certain scientific milestones. And if everything goes to plan, that's, that's possible, that's fantastic. But in science, as we know, things don't often work out that way. 
And so you have to be really frugal and you have to be really able to pivot while still keeping your main goal ahead. So I think that's one really big challenge is under limited capital, limited time, limited resource, limited team, uh, achieve really, really ambitious goals. Obviously, there, there, there are challenges even in sometimes uh, hiring the, the, the right talent, the exactly right kind of people you would want and you would need uh, for the company. We have been quite fortunate with our hiring until now. and We have, we have a fantastic, small but fantastic team. But still, it is definitely, there is, there is a lot of uh, startups in this area these days and uh, talent is getting limited. And where else I see a challenge, not right now, but down the line is again for most of companies in this field, is in the in the scale up and being, yeah. being uh, cost competitive, um, that is a that is a large large challenge that's ahead of everyone. I see for um, ourselves a massive opportunity to bring a product to the market, and that is maybe different to some other companies who have been in this field who are also trying to work on dairy, but more on from ingredients point of view, and so. We really see value in, in bringing a tangible product to people that is fully made and controlled by us, by some third-party company, and that people can identify with and that hopefully can uh, convince people who are uh, meat eaters and dairy eaters that our products are as good and even better or healthier for them to consume. And I think this is a big opportunity because it can make the mind shift and if that happens, then um, maybe these consumers buy other products as well that they wouldn't think of buying. And um, another opportunity I see for us is with other, other startups in the field and other companies is to really kind of down the line, long term, um, think of how we can create an ecosystem and how we can collaborate um, and work together. Because, you know, yeah. uh, dairy is such a big market and disrupting dairy is not going to come just from us. So. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it, that there is a lot of room in the space to be able to disrupt this big industry. That brought up another question. So what exactly in your process will make your product healthier than regular mozzarella that someone can buy in the store today? That's a great question. If you want to break down cheese into ingredients or into components, we all know that cheese, until now at least, comes from dairy milk. And so it depends on what is in milk. And so besides the key proteins I outlined that we are making, which are these casing myself, the key components in, in dairy milk and cheese are lactose as a sugar source and then uh, a mix of saturated and saturated animal fats that include also cholesterol. In our cheese, because we are deriving parts of our formulation from plant-based sources, we are replacing fully lactose with a different plant sugar, meaning our, our products are suitable for lactose intolerant population who are, to my surprise, really, really high numbers. In the US itself, yes. about 50 million people lactose intolerant. And then additionally, our products won't have cholesterol because that's an animal product and we can control the, the amounts of fats and sugars and types used. So we, we are basically engineering in a way a product. We are designing a product and we can design with, with the idea of having better nutrition. Great. I feel like so far we've looked at food as, okay, this is what's available and this is what we can make out of it versus going back to looking at like you said the molecular composition of it and saying okay these are the components that form this interim raw material and therefore how can we re-engineer that i love that exactly when you have a product ready i know initially when we spoke before 
uh, we started recording the podcast, we were talking about your go-to-market strategy and timeline and things like that. And you said that is still a little ways out. Can you tell us a bit about that? And then also along with that, can you tell me, do you plan to sell direct to consumers at that point? Or will you be marketing casein to other companies? So more of a B2B sort of structure. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking right now? Yeah. So from what I was explaining uh, about our really passion to bring the, the end product to the market. Um, this is why we, we, we don't want to go down the route of being a supplier of protein and uh, down to be a, a B2B route, which certainly is a, a very effective route and can, some can argue can have a larger impact faster. I think as a kind of impact and different uh, awareness that, it, that different messaging and different story that it's bringing. Um, and so we are definitely um, direct to consumer, but uh, let's discuss that as well, because it depends what that means. Uh, we are direct to consumer company who wants to bring cheese as a product. And so when we talk about who that, I would say direct to customer. So who that customer is, that customer is one day uh, a consumer, but to start with, that's not going to be uh, really feasible. The go-to-market strategy that we see almost being, you know, universally uh, accepted these days and logical for a lot of companies of, of our stage, as I said, who have to develop challenging new technology and scale it, is to first go uh, and work with intermediary set uh, kind of participants in this supply chain. And those would be the restaurants. Yeah. So we first want to go into restaurants. And actually, our dream is to not to go to a vegan restaurant, but to go to a best Italian restaurant and, and have our mozzarella served there without hesitation, which is obviously going to be a challenge to achieve. And after that, um, we see ourselves uh, in partnerships and, and going down the line of uh, going into the fast food and, and pizza market. And after which we only see we can, we can come directly to consumer. As I say, it's super exciting and we know, we know that we can get there and we will get there, that it is definitely feasible to do this at a large scale and cost competitively, but it's not feasible to do that tomorrow or in the next two years. That will really be massive overpromising from us. So we see that we will be hitting restaurants first in about four years. And that is quite realistic timeline. And that gives you time as well to refine your process and make sure that the product, final product is very consistent, which is what exactly. I think a lot of restaurants and food service companies look for. So that's Absolutely. great. So then tell me a bit about also like right now you have your plans to open go to market with restaurants and potentially food businesses as well. But what about outside of the United States? Is that something that you've got your eyes set on? I ask also because I'm personally very interested to know when a product like this will become available in India, for example, which is where I'm originally from. Our, our aspiration is to be a global cheese producer in 10 to 15 years time so absolutely we want to be we want to be global and um, there is of course a lot of uh, discussion and thinking on how we can achieve that and as i said we don't think we can achieve this alone we can achieve this in partnerships but definitely under the new culture brand and as a new culture so yeah we that we have that aspiration and uh, matt is from new zealand where dairy is actually the largest export right now and he's super keen and super excited to, to have our products in New Zealand. And myself being uh, European, living in, in multiple countries across Europe, uh, where actually cheese is very appreciated and consumed in a way to, to a different um, 
level that I've seen compared to here, I definitely would want to bring our products to Europe. But it's again, just it's a matter of when we have enough work to do to, to supply food to, to Americans. So we, ha we have quite some time in front of us where we'll be focused on, on the US market where mozzarella is actually the, the most consumed cheese before, before we would go elsewhere. That makes sense. And, and to India as well. <laughs> yes. When I speak with companies that are working on uh, the dairy sector, I keep requesting uh, paneer. <laughs> so I really want paneer that I can actually consume again. And yeah. I, I'm very excited that it will happen in my lifetime. It definitely will. And we actually love paneer, so it's on our radar. Okay, so right now you're in the phase where you're working on scaling up and moving forward in terms of the business. What excites you most about what's coming in the next three years before, three, four years before you actually get to market? It really excites me most to taste any new versions of the cheese we're making because it's a kind of an evolution. It's a work in progress and the product is constantly improved. We, we, were, we were quite satisfied with our proof of concept formulation we've developed throughout IndieBio, but it's, I'm sure it's far away from what our product will look like at the end. So I'm really excited to see that. What I also find super exciting is that we do in-house so many different types of science and have really very diverse teams. And so learning from everyone and working with everyone has been super exciting. Can you tell our listeners where they can get more information about your company and where they can sign up to hear more once you're getting closer to product launch? Sure. To follow us online, to find us online, we are active as New Culture, um, actually on our website, New Culture Food. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're trying to be present uh, and also we're trying to be very open to communication and transparent with people when they write to us, when they ask questions, uh, if they reach out. So th these are the best ways I would say to follow us is on social media. That's how people seem to be active nowadays. We also have our own website and we, we plan to uh, write from time to time uh, a blog just to kind of keep everyone posted on, on what's going on and uh, and in general, to discuss anything that we find exciting or relevant in the sphere of, of food biotech, please find us online and be in touch. And yeah, we're also, we're, we're still hiring. <laughs> so we're still expanding the team. So yes. if you're interested in joining and you think you have a good skill set for what we're doing, then reach out. That's great. I will include the website in the show notes so people will have access to that. Great. I think it's, we're, we live in challenging and exciting times. I think there'll be more and more people participating in this space. So I'm actually excited to see that. I think my parting word would be more, maybe not related to us as a company, or what we're doing directly, but just related to this uh, massive uh, crisis we're living in of something that I'm really personally preoccupied with. I guess I would ask everyone to see and think in their, in their own lives how they can contribute. I think that to make change from individual choices and impacts, I think that's great. Thank you so much, Inya, for being with us. It was great to speak with you, and I'm sure our listeners will be very excited. Thank you for having us, Rania. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into this episode of After Animals. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or tell one friend about our show. The more people we have listening, the faster we can spread the word. Thank you.
The After Animals podcast's mission is to activate a kinder, more compassionate world through innovation. After Animals is hosted by me, Yulara Nakagawa, and me, Sharanya Krishna Prasad, for, for the, the animals. animals.